Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here for this new episode of Nepal Now, the podcast where we highlight different ideas and ways of moving the country forward. I'm Marty Logan, and I hope you can hear those birds chirping in the background. We just had light rain, so they've come out to celebrate. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that you're now able to support Nepal Now financially, if you wish. Go to our website, nepalnow.buzzsprout.com, that's B-U-Z-Z-S-P-R-O-U-T.com, then to the narrow black box titled Nepal Now Plus, where you can click to support the show. I've also included the link in the notes to this episode. This is strictly voluntary. We will not restrict new episodes to people who support us, but it will help pay for the time that we put into the show. And I must say, for me, it is also a vote of confidence in our work. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can write to me at martylogancoms, C-O-M-M-S, at gmail.com. Thank you. Today we're speaking with Dr. Mandira Sharma, a human rights activist, founder of the NGO Advocacy Forum, and senior international legal advisor at the International Commission of Jurists. She was involved in the very first exhumation of a body in a conflict-related case in Nepal in 2007, and has been training in the process since then as a non-medical expert. Mandira says that Nepal has been slow to undertake exhumations to try to find some of the more than 3,000 people said to be disappeared during the conflict from 1996 to 2006. It is also neglected to develop technical expertise and policies and guidelines to undertake that work. We also chat about how exhumation fits into the four pillars of transitional justice and if Nepal is neglecting most of those pillars. Finally, Mandira argues that the state of the country today, including economic underdevelopment and political instability, can be traced back to the impunity that has reigned over Nepal since before the conflict. Importantly, in the days following our recording, a case was filed in Nepal's Supreme Court against Prime Minister Pushpa Kamal Dahal. Known as Prachanda when he led the Maoist uprising, in 2020, Dahal admitted that the Maoists were responsible for 5,000 of the 17,000 people estimated killed during the conflict. Starting on Thursday, the Supreme Court will hear if the Prime Minister should be investigated for that crime. And a warning before we start. This episode discusses exhumation of the bodies of victims of conflict. Please take care while listening. Now, here's my chat with Mandira Sharma. Mandira Sharma, welcome to Nepal Now. Thank you very much, Marty. Exhumation has been used in a few cases uh, in Nepal following the Maoist conflict. And I think the best-known case might be the one of Maina Sunwar, the 15-year-old who was kidnapped, uh, raped, and murdered by army soldiers in 2004, I believe, her body was exhumed, and an autopsy was carried out a few years later. And a side note about that case, it's still in the courts, 
and the perpetrators are still free. So can you tell me about your own work on exhumation? Uh, thank you for bringing this uh, issue. Um, you are right that uh, my first actually work on this also started uh, by Minas Noir's case. We worked on that case since the very first day when Minas Noir was arrested uh, by the military uh, in February uh, 17, 2004. Um, after the arrest, uh, she was disappeared because the military and all the state agencies refused to acknowledge her detention. They, you know, uh, told family members and everyone that they have not arrested the girl. She was disappeared. Uh, but we worked on that case to the extent that later military acknowledged her uh, arrest and detention. But then a uh, family member was given, we were given false information. Um, we were told that she was killed on the way to the barrack because she attempted to escape. Uh, we challenged that person because it was not the true story. Uh, so later on, it was established that she was brought to a particular barrack, which uh, army admitted, and there she was tortured to death, and her body was uh, illegally buried uh, in the compound of the barrack. Once we established that fact uh, through our investigation, we then um, wanted to actually know and see because uh, it was very important for the family members to have uh, uh, her body uh, to really be certain that she was um, in fact dead because, um, you know, one of the things of enforced disappearances is that family members always have hope that their loved one will come back. Um, so that's why exhumation is so important. And through that work, I realize how important it is for family member, for their closure, for the healing, and also to have culturally, you know, uh, perform a sort of um, ritual so they feel uh, satisfied that they could do what they, they wanted to do for their loved one. Um, so we exhume the body, but in the process of that exhumations, we realize that we actually don't have the capacity within the country. Uh, it is not just like digging the, uh, the body. Uh, there is a sort of process involved into this. Uh, when these sort of cases happen, it's also, uh, there are some legal consequences as well, legal implications as well. Um, when we were, you know, in the process of exhuming Maina's body, it was not uh, clear or, you know, family members were not even allowed to participate. Uh, that's how criminal investigations are done. But in the in in the case of enforced disappearances, it is very important for family members to be participating in those processes. So at that time, it was you know uh, police who was also involved would not really uh, let other people involved into the process, and we also didn't have a sort of um, technical know-how how exhumations are done uh, in in this kind of context. Sorry, so this would have been uh, which year then? She was, dis she was disappeared in 2004. Right. Uh, we could finally exhume her body in 2007. Right. So this was kind of one of the first post-conflict cases where, you, where there was an exhumation done. You were just kind of learning or do, learning as you were doing, in a way. Exactly. It's not only us human rights activists, lawyers, but also the police, uh, the pathologist, for example, forensic uh, medical doctor who was involved into this, you know, uh, the prosecutor, for example, you know, it was new to all, all investigating uh, institutions. So we actually uh, had... Um, 
uh, expert at that time from Argentina. Uh, you and OHGHR helped us uh, to bring uh, the expert from uh, Argentina where they had developed a lot of capacity on this issue because of their own history of enforced disappearances. So yes, you touched upon a very important question because uh, there is this technical know-how into this. This also has to be done in a particular way. Uh, it also touches the emotions of family members, uh, their healing processes, and also our cultural uh, uh, you know, aspects. Uh, so there are like different kind of dimension involved into this, which we did not realize at that time, which is now um, something that we are learning as we go along. You know, when you think about it, maybe your only uh, exposure to it would have been a TV show where all you see is the technical part. Right, the careful digging, the brushing or whatever to make sure you don't disturb the body, right? But you don't think about the, these other aspects. You really don't think about bringing the family into the process, the cultural aspect as well. So that case was done. Did that establish kind of a trend of doing exhumations in Nepal? Or was that like a one-off case? There wasn't kind of a pattern set. Can you explain what happened since then up until now? So in the case of Mainashanuar, uh, we were actually uh, filing a complaint in the police uh, demanding criminal investigation. There was no investigation, so we had actually moved to the court and there was an order from the Supreme Court asking police to complete investigations within certain amount of time. Uh, so that actually forced the police and prosecutors to investigate on these cases. And we were also mobilizing a lot of pressure uh, on, on this case because that barrack where Mainashanuar uh, was tortured to death and her body was uh, illegally buried was the barrack where we would train Nepali soldiers to go to the peacekeeping. Um, so because of that also, UN was also somehow implicated and Nepal is one of the major you know, troop contributing countries to the peacekeeping uh, missions. So I think through different uh, hooks that we had, uh, we actually uh, forced military to allow this exhumation to happen. And we uh, established that she was tortured to death. Everything was that. Despite that, you know, it took us um, 13 years to really have the district court finding um, perpetrators responsible uh, in this case or convicting those those responsible. Despite the court order, those uh, perpetrators have not been arrested yet. But, uh, you know, uh, district court has found them involved in murder of Mainoshinuwar. Uh, but, you know, when we had that exhumation, uh, we also were working on similar cases in other districts as well. Uh, so uh, we had another in, uh, exhumations in Janakpur, where, um, again, in 2004, uh, five youths were arrested by the security forces and they were disappeared. We were also investigating this case and we suspected that maybe they were uh, summarily executed and buried in a particular place. We actually protected that place for a number of years and after the comprehensive peace agreement was signed, uh, we actually uh, filed um, FIR, what we call FIR, First Information Report to the police, seeking criminal investigation on this case. So again, in this case, we also uh, were able to mobilize a lot of pressure. Uh, National Human Rights Commission was also involved. There was a sort of court order. So that led to uh, the exhumations of, of these five youths in, in, in that particular uh, place. Their bodies were also exhumed. Again, uh, we uh, had to bring 
experts from other other countries as well because we don't actually have forensic archaeologists for example uh, you know the place where we had identified as a possible burial sites whether it is the site or not that had to be uh, a certain and there is a sort of technical know-how how you uh, you know find out whether that particular place might be a sort of place where people are buried you know these sort of technical know-hows we 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 didn't have and we you still don't have but uh, unfortunately it couldn't really set the uh, precedent or the uh, momentum as you said despite the fact that we have more than 3000 people disappeared in this country so uh, what we are told is that there will be a sort of um, truth and reconciliation commission or a commission of inquiry on enforced disappearances which is established now uh, which is not been able to function but that commission is supposed to be doing uh, this work but as i said it's also it involves a lot of different aspects for example in the case of janakpur uh, there were a lot of complaints from family members that they were not able to participate from the beginning and it's very important maybe in other criminal investigations uh, you would not uh, allow family members to involve but in the case like this it is very important for family members to be involved and there are like international standards uh, evolved on these issues that would actually uh require the participation of family members and civil society organizations in these processes which we have to incorporate in our uh, our system and processes uh, this is something that we are still learning uh, and we are really advocating that uh, nepal develops this uh, capacity so we could actually work on these uh, cases of enforced disappearances mm, okay i know just from reading an, an article uh, online that last year 2022 one of the two commissions the transitional justice commissions the commission of investigation on enforced disappeared persons said or at least it was reported that they were going to dig at six sites in the country um where they believe that bodies were buried that was supposed to happen i think before last february or last july and i don't think it happened i mean did you know about that were you involved in that did they do preparation for that or was it just something they came up with suddenly and announced without doing all of these things that you're talking about uh, having the expertise and consulting we also heard that they were uh, going to do this examinations because that's what they were uh, telling to the press to public uh, but i really don't know to what extent they were putting all the necessary preparation into place uh, i also doubt they really understand different dynamics involved into this uh, at least it was not transparent for example uh, we should have very clear policy uh, guidelines and standards in doing exhumation because once you exhum you cannot really un- undo these things you know um, so and many of these are like crime uh scenes as well this exhumation this process and the findings would be very very critical uh in determining justice uh for for victims and their families so how much they had put their thinking into this was something we were not very clear so at that point and, and even today what we as civil society organizations are arguing is that uh we need some sort of policy framework on this it has to be clarified how 
we ensure participation of family members into these processes. We need to make clear how chain of custody of evidences are maintained. Um, we need to know how this would link to the justice processes. Uh, we would also like to uh, know what kind of technical expertise that uh, the exhumation team has actually put in place. For example, we would also require forensic archaeologists as well counselors uh, uh, for example you know it could be very emotional process for family members we are saying that family members have a right to participate but at the same times they also get emotionally break down you know when they see uh, their loved one who, who you know whom they believe are still alive being actually buried in that kind of way you know um, so that that has to be taken into consideration and it has to be guided by the policy document uh, at the same times it is very important to really identify who the person is whose whose remains is is this um, belong to um when we have the cases of uh, mass graves it's very important to determine wh whose remains belong to which disappeared person which family for example right so to determine that uh, identification process uh, there is again different layers of processes uh, involved um, how do you take the samples of DNA, for example, because uh, there could be a sort of several bones, uh, so several remains, but which remains belong to which particular family is something that you need to determine. And that would require some technical know-how, and we don't really know how CIDP was going to do that. So um, we were also asking clarification on some of these issues, and these uh, issues need to be clarified before we go uh, for exhumation. And uh, I don't really think that uh, we have put those things together. The state has put those things uh, together, and CIDP has to put those things together. They need to train people. We need to have uh, trained personnel in uh, doing exhumations. You cannot just go dig, uh, dig the place and uh, exhume the body without really knowing how you are going to use it. So I think I can conclude from what you said that there is no plan. There's no plan underway to prepare this technical expertise, and also that civil society has not been involved, even if there were a plan, you're not being kind of kept in in the loop. But I think you yourself has have been uh, involved in the sense of learning more about the processes that are involved in exhumation. Could I call that training, or are you just becoming more familiar with the entire process. Can you tell me a little bit more about your own uh, learning on this? I also, um, you know, realized this aspect after uh, the exhumation of Maina Sunwar's case and the case that we exhumed in 2010 in uh, Janakpur, for example. So I took a course because I was really interested in this and um, I have been working on the issue of enforced disappearances for many years in, in the country, and I really hope that um, we will be able to exhume the bodies of those disappeared persons and identify uh, the body, the remains. Uh, and it has to happen in the context of transitional justice in Nepal because family members are waiting for this and we really need to develop that capacity within the country as well. Um, so as I, I am very much involved into this issue, I just wanted to learn because I don't come from medical background because initially I thought that it, you would require medical <laughs> background for this, you know. <laughs> 
um, I, I didn't take biology, for example, in my uh, school or, or, or the college. Nevertheless, I took the class. I took the course. It is a training course on forensic uh, in the context of uh, enforced disappearances. Of course, forensic is involved in so many um, different uh, ways in criminal investigations, but I was very much interested in the context of transitional justice in the context of uh, exhumations of disappeared person, right? So I, I took that course, and as part of that course, I also visited Guatemala, for example, uh, where they have, you know, 40,000 plus cases of enforced disappearances and they uh, have done some exhumations there uh, and they have established very uh, sophisticated uh, lab and they also have um, professional technical uh, expertise in the country. Uh, so I happen to be one of the the participants who got the opportunity to uh, go and work in their lab, learn while they were working on exhumation, uh, how they maintain chain of custody, how they um, do DNA tests, how they take DNA samples from the family members, you know, how they uh, level every single bone, uh, you know, how they determine the cause of death, for example. You know, so I, I actually, I'm learning. Uh, I did that course and I'm still, uh, you know, not doing it. Uh, but I uh, am very happy to report it that I think a lot of um, um, technology have been developed in this field uh, and a lot of experiences actually exist now on this issue. Uh, so we could actually learn from other contexts, uh, from other countries where they have gone through these processes and have developed some sort of know-how and uh, expertise on this uh, subject. So what I'm really trying to do is to really bring those experiences and expertise into the country so we could develop our uh, expertise in this country as well. Okay, it sounds like a, I mean, a lot, a lot to take in, but fascinating, and important, obviously, also to um, to learn how that's done. I want to talk a little bit about more broadly the transitional justice process, and as you know, obviously, there are these different pillars to transitional justice, and we've kind of touched on some of them. You know, the justice part, and also. Uh, the truth that leads to closure. So families learning what happened to their, their family members. There's also reparations and making sure that people have a way to survive economically after the incident. And then I think the fourth pillar might be trying to get to a place where you ensure that this doesn't happen again, that peace is maintained. It seems that here in Nepal, we, we talk a lot about justice. And by we, I'm, I'm talking about the media because that's where I get most of my inf information from. And we really focus on what the leaders are doing and what the, when we say the process, we're talking about the judicial process. And I think it's in part because there's not a lot of progress being made. We know that the Supreme Court and the international community have told uh, various governments to update the laws and they just have ignored those calls. But all that being said, there are these other pillars beyond justice. And first of all, it sounds like you're saying that the exhumation work kind of fits into different pillars. Um, so maybe you can say a little bit about where it fits in. And also, when it comes to these other pillars, do you think there's enough being done? There are like some uh, efforts, some 
components of transitional justice being implemented, but they are implemented in such a way that uh, victims don't actually uh, feel uh, that they were done properly and uh, it was a part of um, transitional justice process. For example, immediately after the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, uh, the government rolled out a, a compensation scheme for victim conflict victims, you know. Um, of course, at that time, civil society organizations and victims uh, were saying that this is not compensation because you have not really determined why you are compensating for, who the victim is, you know, and what is your process in determining victims, right? Uh, we are also saying that you know, it has to be reparation because there should be acknowledgement of the harm caused to the uh, family members or the victims. So then we were saying that it could be interim relief because all these victims need uh, some immediate support. Um, so government, um, you know, agreed to term this as uh, interim relief. But the uh, the culture here in Nepal is that um, you know if if human rights violations occur. The government just provides ex gratia monetary kind of compensation, um, and that's it. And that is being paid by the state treasury. So uh, neither the perpetrators feel a sense of accountability, nor there is any sense of accountability, nor uh, a sort of uh, proper um, measures is taken to really not to repeat this again. You know, So it actually happens again and again and again, right? So this time um, we are saying that, no, we have to do things properly lot of experiences and, um, you know, understanding has already been built on this subject. And we cannot just repeat the same mistake again and again. Government has been rolling out some compensation uh, scheme, some reparation kind of uh, scheme, but it is not done in a proper way. That's why victims don't really think that they are adequately compensated or they are adequately reparated. So uh, that's why there is a process, uh, transitional justice process, that, that is actually um, acknowledges this aspect is very important. So there are some civil society-led initiatives in truth-telling, truth-seeking. Uh, there are a lot of public hearings as well. Victims themselves have documented their stories. Uh, there are a lot of organizations documenting the stories uh, of our victims. But that has not satisfied victims because uh, this is not a state-led process where a state takes the responsibility uh, and uh, actually acknowledges what happened to victims was wrong, you know. So as those sort of uh, measures are not um, built in, uh, not there, so there is no proper process. That's why comprehensive transitional justice process is very important where it acknowledges or it take into consideration all different pillars of transitional justice. So exhumation is very, very important, as you rightly pointed out, for establishing truth because family members would like to know what happened to their loved one. And especially in the case of enforced disappearances, this is the primary a priority uh, for a victim because they want to know whether their loved one are still alive or dead. Once they know they are dead, they would like to know how they died, you know, who was responsible behind that, why it happened to uh, their loved one. Then they would uh, ask for justice. Um, the, the delay in this process uh, and also the attempt the government has been trying to make, and that's why uh, we you know, are not really making a lot of progress, is that the government wants to do in a piecemeal basis. You know? So 
money has been given to family members. For example, families of despaired person have received one million Nepalese rupees. Uh, government thought that with that amount of money or by paying that amount of money, victim would be satisfied. But no, they haven't because there is no proper truth. They they don't really know what happened to their loved one. Um, so they also need to know or they want to see perpetrators being punished as well once they know who the perpetrator was involved being in that case, for example. And they also uh, want to have uh, sort of broader reparative measures. For example, they uh, are saying that we need support for educating our children because my husband was the uh, the breadwinner. He was the one who would uh, you know earn money, for example, right? Wife has a lot of psychological problems. She needs regular medical treatment. So these are some of the reparation kind of measures that we would think uh, needed for family members, which has not been done so far. Transitional justice is a comprehensive process, and we really have to take on all those different pillars into considerations and complementing each other, then uh, working them in isolation. Mm. I really like the way you describe that as b- being linked. Almost one leads to the other naturally. So you, you provide the first one, the truth, and then the family kind of, it's a natural pro- progression and you can't separate it as easily as the government hoped you could when, when they first paid off people. And I think even, just to make this point, that they didn't pay off everyone. So for example, women who said that they had been sexually abused they were left out of even that kind of token payment system. I understand because the government just didn't want to acknowledge that there had been any any sexual abuse uh, during the conflict. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, they excluded uh, victims of sexual violence and torture. torture right. They were torture not well. actually recognized as uh, conflict victims. So, And they are continuing to face this discrimination even today. Right. Two other things that I wanted to ask you about. One is that, and again, I use I use the media as kind of my starting point on what I hear and learn about this. We we never hear about other other countries' processes, and of course there have been a lot, and in Asia as well as in Africa, South America. You mentioned uh, as well. Some are ongoing. You mentioned Guatemala, Argentina, Guatemala. Um, as places where exhumation has been um, done and you learn from that. Why is it that we don't hear about what's going on in other countries and how that that may feed into the Nepal process? Is it partly that Nepal likes to talk about on the international stage how successful their homegrown peace process has been? And I think when they say that, they're looking specifically at the fact that war did not break out again. That's kind of the measure that they used to say Nepal did it all by by itself and look how look how great we've we've managed this post conflict. Um or are there other reasons why there's just no attempt to learn from other processes? I would think that it's more um uh the sense of impunity than um, being very proud of uh, what we nationally could do or locally could do. Um, I think we have uh, experienced significant extent of human rights violations. 
of course, the extent of which was amplified during the conflict, but human rights violation predates Nepal's conflict and it continues to uh, happen. Uh, but we don't really have any accountability. There is no proper investigations. There is no one really brought to justice. Uh, there is no proper reparation. And this is how the state of affairs is, you know. Um, so those who are in power are always above the law. And it has become sort of norm. You know, the exception should have, you know, that could be a sort of exception, but now it's a norm. So for victims, um, those who are very poor, marginalized, have no voice, no links, no connections, it's very hard to even think that justice is possible, truth is possible. Um, and the perpetrators, you know, those who are in power also know uh, that um, victims have no voice and they could easily dismiss dismiss this, right? So that's why there is no uh, genuine attempt to really do proper transitional justice in the country or to redress the past, um, you know, harm that they committed, the past crimes that they, they committed. You know, if there is a genuine process, then one only, only you could really think, okay, what are the experiences from other countries? Let's bring this and that. There is no genuine process. There is no attempt to really put that in a process in the country. I would think that is one of the reasons. We have tried from civil society side to really bring those experiences into a uh, country. There were um, commissioners coming from Peruvian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example, coming here and sharing their exp uh, experiences, how they have been dealing with the issue of enforced disappearances. We also uh, brought the experiences, you know, the judges from the special uh, jurisdiction of peace in Colombia, for example, where they have established special kind of mechanisms to deal with some of the legacies of the past human rights violations. And all these are the attempts from civil society organizations. It's not the state that uh, would reach out, which would have been very easy for the, for the state, right? Uh, but uh, these are the attempts from civil society uh, organizations and government has not really taken any uh, kind of responsibility. The problem here is that uh, there is no fear for those in power, for, for those who have committed the crimes who is still to be in, in power. And we have very deep-rooted problem of impunity. Those who are in power are sort of untouchable and it perpetuates even today. Discrimination is also very deep-seated in the uh, in the country. Law not protecting equally is is something that you can see every day being manifested. Although constitution says that everyone is equal before the law, no citizens are not equal before the law. So I think we have not really addressed some of these fundamental issues that are important in maintaining rule of law um, or democracy. That's why we 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 caught into this. Uh, instability, you know, people in power benefits from creating this instability and every six months we have the change of government, we have the change of institutions, a lot of, uh, you know, patronizations in the, you know, public institutions. Institutions are not actually built to serve the people, for example. They always have to serve the, uh, the political masters, for example. Um, so although we don't have violent conflict, we are not having a proper state function, you know, functioning democracy or the functioning states machinery here. People are suffering. You know, if you really look how many people every day go abroad, you know, just to seek for work, it's 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 unimaginable. If you see the economic growth in the country, if you really see um, 
how uh, marginalized community face their da- daily life, you know, the kind of discrimination. So I think all these indicators, all these root causes of conflicts continue to exist in, in Nepal. We have not been able to address that. So we are not assured that the uh, conflict will not arise again in the country. Um, so I don't think there is anything that we should be very proud of this homegrown kind of process because we have to learn from other contexts and, you know, processes as well. Right. Okay. I also get the feeling that there's this strong confidence that it can't happen again. For for whatever reason, I think maybe people just have this and maybe it's just the leadership. Maybe the feeling is different in places where the conflict really had a bigger impact. You know, some of the various centers where Banke, for instance, and some of these places where there are more victims, more activity. Maybe people, there's a different feeling. But connected to that, there's this saying that if you don't live, if you don't learn from the past, then you're doomed to repeat the past. But at the same time, when you're living in Nepal and you're going about your daily life, you don't feel that there was a conflict here. You know, there are occasional reports about victims protesting or someone's individual story comes up in the media and then and then you understand what happened in that case. But if you were to come here and spend a month here in Kathmandu and even outside Kathmandu and, and travel around, I think you could easily go away without ever knowing that there had been a conflict. Now, we just talked about families of the disappeared and families of other victims, how they're still affected. But do you think it's possible that the country has overcome the conflict, that it can just keep going on and hopefully overcome the political problems and then just move on to the next level of so-called development and progress and leave the conflict behind? Or does it somehow at some point need to stop or pause and turn around and look back and address things in the past? Um, I think we have different uh, manifestation of uh, the impact of this conflict. People still face uh, challenges in reporting any violence that they face, for example, at the community level. Even for a very basic kind of um, response that you would uh, expect from the state machinery when your rights are violated, when you are harmed, when you are, you know, discriminated, state does not respond to that. There is no system to really provide any remedies for, for victims. So that's that's more a general thing. It's not like there's still a divide between government and Maoist at the community level and people are scared of being on the wrong side of that. It's, yeah. it's more general, you're yeah. saying. So, I mean, the fact that we have not been able to address the past, we have not been able to make the progress in development, for example, you know, the kind of prosperity that you were mentioning, moving forward, you know, uh, restoring rule of law. It's not happening because that's what we pretend, because we pretend that we have addressed the past, but we haven't. That's why we have all this instability uh, in, 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 in the state. 
you know, every uh, few months there is a change of government. When there is a change of government, uh, state machinery becomes some sort of defunct, you know. Uh, somehow, as this has been prolonged for so long, people have found their informal ways of keeping their daily life moving. Otherwise, um, neither police functions properly nor judiciary functions properly. All these public institutions, you know, that are supposed to be really serving the people. No, I mean, they don't really function, you know, despite the taxpayers paying so much of money to them. They don't really serve the people. Uh, people are very poor. It's been very difficult. They go abroad, you know, take their life at risk. Uh, you know, country is uh, run through remittance. There is no um, sense of urgency among political leaders that we have to increase our growth. No. Um, it's, it's been controlled by the criminal um, gangs or, uh, you know, uh, state machineries in, in the control of certain people who benefit from crimes. And we have not been able to uh, address that. That's that, that, that's why we have not been able to progress. We have not been able to move forward. And I would think that this is one of the reasons why we need to uh, have this transitional justice process to really genuinely unpack uh, what, what we did wrong in the past and what can be repaired to really help us to move uh, forward and, and to learn from that mistake, not to repeat the, uh, the future, uh, you know. For that, the reforms of the institution is key. How do we introduce the system of accountability? Where, you know, or how we make a sort of shift in public institutions that they are there to serve people. The poorest, the first. You know, the marginalized one, the first. Not those who are already already privileged, you know. I think these are the questions that transitional justice process could also um, try to, to answer if, if we put genuine process into place. Okay. Uh, finally, why is this so important to you personally? Because obviously you've been working at this for a long time. You could have moved on to other things. You know, you're well-educated. I'm sure you could find other areas to work in. As you were saying now, is it this need to somehow contribute to reforming the country, to to seeing that the justice system is put right? Or is it more that you've worked with a lot of victims? And I know one in particular, and I'm sure there are others, but uh, the mother of Maina Sunwar, Devi Sunwar, and she has been kind of a prominent figure in transitional justice since that incident happened. And I know you work very closely with her. Is it that? Is that you want to see victims get what they deserve, not only in terms of justice or reparations, but truth as well? Is it that it offends you that this is, you know, as a lawyer, that this is not being dealt with legally, properly, according to the law? What is it that makes you keep banging away at this when there hasn't been a lot of progress since the peace accord was signed? There could be different factors, but I think um, when I was still very young, uh, we witnessed this democracy movement in Nepal in 1990. That time I was still the student, um, but then I worked with a lot of torture survivors after the 1990s uh, movement was somehow successful through this negotiated kind of uh, agreement. A lot of those detainees were released from detention. Uh, 
but first time i realized how torture destroy the personality of the person some of them were very known people so when they came out from detention they were completely different person so i f- first hand i um, experienced or sh- saw that immediately after the 1990s political change then um, i thought that oh okay it's very important to have rehabilitation of these people but more than that it's important to prevent this to happen because it was not only uh, the person who was subjected to torture but entire family gets uh, affected um, uh, you know once that happens to your loved one and and you have to deal with that stigma and that consequences for the rest of the life it actually impacts lot of uh, other family members as well that that was the reason why i studied law <laughs> thinking that you know i could contribute to this um but then we experienced this conflict um during conflict again we saw so many violations but then many of those violations were happening in the um, districts remote part of the country and a lot of people in the cities would not even know what was happening there and would bother uh, by by those incidences but people there were dying every day you know the kind of desperate situation that we saw was was something that we felt had to be documented you know so um then once you started to work with with them you have seen uh, that firsthand uh, and you became a sort of part of of their struggle so it's very hard um, to really uh, betray them that's how i feel it now i have attempted a number of times to change it <laughs> because it's also too much to uh continue um it's also at some point very risky as well um there are a lot of uh, threats <laughs> involved into this because uh, most of these crimes are committed by the most powerful people in the country um and they they have everything to mobilize <laughs> to uh destroy you so but it's it's very hard because then you feel that um you are the privileged one you you have that access you have education you have you know if you feel that you cannot do uh, how what moral ground that you have to ask this victim to speak out those who don't have any connection have no education no access right so it's sort of internal thing for me you know like even to uh you know live with your conscience you know to listen to your um conscience and li- live at least be honest to yourself you know do what you feel that is right and and i think that what i'm doing is something that i feel right mm. okay i know as a journalist when i think about reporting about this the idea of going to a victim and saying share with me what you're doing now or what happened i i just don't want to do it anymore because i know i have nothing to give and even you know the idea what you hope as a journalist is that your reporting contributes to positive change but it's been so many years that no reporting and all of this other work as you know much better than me has really contributed to positive change so i i get a very small idea of what of what you feel and why you're why you're you're driven in that way but it's also not true that um the media writing have not have any impact it's not also true that uh, what we have been doing has not really contributed for example the kind of things that keeps motivating me is also uh, if we were not there 
uh, we would never know what happened to my Noir, for example. If we were not there, we would not have been sitting here today discussing this issue, for example. Um, if we were not there, we would not have saved uh, many lives. Those were there in detention, you know, illegally at that time, for example. We would not have been able to have this discourse that, look, instead machinery has to be uh, accountable. Um, you know, those who commit crimes should be accountable. I have seen that we have made significant impact um, into this. But but the th thing is that the, the gamut of problem is so big. So it requires very massive overhauling <laughs> of the system, right. which hasn't right. happened. Right. Um, so, But we have to be hopeful. And uh, one thing that I... <laughs> Um, really like uh, to quote is that, you know, there is this, uh, he died last year, unfortunately. There was this Chilean lawyer, um, uh, Roberto Goreton. I used to read his uh, uh, writing quite a lot because uh, he was a lawyer in, in Chile when the, uh, when the dictator um, Pinochet's re regime was, was there. There were a lot of people who had disappeared. Uh, and killed, tortured, displaced. But then this lawyer was always filing these reads of habeas corpus on behalf of those people who were uh, arrested by the military, detained and disappeared. Not even one case, he would win the case, but he would just file the case, right? <laughs> and I was like very surprised at that time, why this guy keeps filing these cases knowing that nothing would happen. But then eventually, I think when the regime was changed, uh, these were the evidences to really uh, establish, to find the whereabouts of those disappeared people and to bring those responsible to justice, at least opening the discourse on this subject, really putting a sort of context into into those discourse. Not only that, then I had the opportunity to meet him and I yeah. asked the same question, what kept you motivated into this? So he, he was uh, telling us that, look, one uh, crime that you cannot commit as a human rights activist or or, or a sort of person who has this uh, this opportunity to be educated is to lose hope. Hmm. That's the crime that you commit. So if you are hopeful, you you know that drives you towards that direction, and things could change. So I think, in a way, I believe into that. I'm hopeful that things will change in Nepal one day. <laughs> If not in my gen generation, my lifetime, maybe uh, uh, the, the second generation, you know, uh, people after me. But we have to, um, you know, keep that torch alive, you know. So that that's how I believe. Well, thank you, because it's true. You, you've said very clearly that there has already been some progress, some change. It's not the big change that we're all looking for, but little by little, uh, it can come. So... Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we say goodbye? No, thank you for bringing these uh, issues uh, to these discussions as well. Uh, um, thank you for doing this. Mandira, thank you very much for coming, sharing your time, sharing your expertise, and I'll be following your work closely. Thank you very much, Mahdi. Thank you. Thanks again to Mandira Sharma for sharing her time with us today. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our chat. Share them on our social channels. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Or you can write to me at martylogancoms, C-O-M-M-S, at gmail.com. We recorded this episode at Ujalo Radio in Kathmandu. Thanks to them for supporting Nepal Now. 
My name is Marty Logan. I'll talk to you again soon.